0: Father, uh, as we sang that song, the verse that was read earlier is echoing in my mind and heart. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Father, love was your idea. Real, authentic, true, saving love, it all comes from you, Father. We didn't generate it, we didn't think of it. You created it, and you have poured it out for us, Father. no, nowhere greater by far than the cross where you gave us your one and only Son. As we sang just a moment ago, freely he gave his life for us. Freely he laid down his life, shed his blood as the sacrifice for sin, and the result for us is, in fact, freedom in Christ, if we will believe. Father, that's a mystery bigger than we can unpack. In in a year's worth of, of, of looking at your word, Father, even if we did it day in and day out, we would never, and, and Lord, your word confirms us. we would never completely plumb the depths of what it means that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, surrendered his life for sinners. We're just glad that he did, and we're glad, Father, for the opportunity, the privilege of hearing and knowing, and for so many of us here this morning, believing your gospel Father, for being part of your plan, for being loved by you and, and, and drawn into your family, and Father, for the folks here among us this morning who aren't there yet, may this be their day to join the family of God, to surrender their life for Jesus Christ, the one who first surrendered his life for them. Father, if nothing else happens here today, if that happened in one life, it would be enough. Father, at the same time, we believe that when we come together, you want to speak into all of our lives, that you want to speak to all of our hearts, that there's something here for everyone who will listen and hear. Lord, not to me, but to you. And so as we open your word, Father, we ask as we always, and we never want to become routine or or ordinary about it. We ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to come and guide us in truth, because your word is truth and nothing else comes close. Father, for the help of your Spirit to guard us from error and misunderstanding, Lord, we, we get easily confused, we are easily led astray, your Word tells us that, and we want you to protect us from it this morning. Father, we ask by the power of your Spirit that you deliver us from whatever has accumulated during the week that threatens to encroach, to distract us, to divide us. Father, we pray that for the next little while this would be a safe place, both in mind and body and heart, Father, for us to listen to you. Because above all, we would ask that in the next little while, if we haven't already, you would help us to see Jesus. Lord, may we see Jesus clearly this morning in and through the study of your word. May we see Jesus only this morning through the study of your word. Father, through that, renew our hope, change our lives and make us more like him. Jesus, our Savior and our friend in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And as you're doing that, I want you to Take your Bible out if you have one with you. If not, as always, there's a stack of them in back, and you can grab one. Uh, to Acts chapter six. Acts chapter six, we uh, wrapped up obviously chapter five last week with a with a great big chunk of scripture. Looking, um, just continuing to look at the story and some of the challenges the church faced this morning. Going to do somewhat in, in in a sense the very opposite, a very small portion of scripture. Uh, But the more time I've spent in it and the more I've thought about it, the more important I realize that it is uh, for us to understand what was happening here and and allow God to to use it to speak to our hearts. So I want you to find Acts chapter 6. We're going to read the first seven verses here Uh, in a moment. We're going to read them in their entirety. And then as always, excuse me, walk back through that and... And see what it says, but before we can talk about where we are, we need very quickly, as we often do, to remember how we got here. What brought us, and of course the church, to this point. Here in the book of Acts, the approach we're taking is we are looking at our story, the story of the church in the book of acts how we got here what it's all about and who we are to be as followers of Jesus Christ but in the moment here we want to see what's led us up to acts chapter 6 so i would remind you if you've been here the past couple of sundays and i would inform you if you have not that what we have seen over the past couple of chapters in the book of acts is that the church of Jesus Christ the early jerusalem gathering of believers has as of late weathered a couple of very serious storms. From the outside, we've seen them face an onslaught of oppression from the the ruling religious establishment who didn't like, in fact, we saw the word in the scripture last week. They were jealous of the early church, so jealous that they decided they wanted to wipe the church out. And and so we've seen them oppressing the apostles. Specifically, they've given them several stern warnings. A couple of times now, they've drug them into court. They've spent a night in jail. And of course, you remember last week, Acts chapter 5 ended with all 12 apostles being beaten as Christ was before his crucifixion within an inch of their lives you get the impression they didn't like these guys that's a storm of oppression they've faced from the outside we also saw the week before that 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 they had faced and dealt with a storm from within and that was a storm of deception two of their very own members sought to deceive the apostles deceive the church found out that what they were doing really was trying to deceive the lord and so god struck them dead in church that's a storm That's a big deal. They've dealt with all of these, or at least these couple of very big storms in their midst. And again, as storms go, they were fairly big ones. But here's the interesting thing: didn't stop growing. Neither of those things, external oppression or internal deception and corruption, as Luke repeatedly knows, did not even slow down the growth of the church. The gospel wildfire just kept burning. People continued to be saved. The church continued to grow and have an impact in Jerusalem. And what I want you to know this morning now as we arrive at Acts chapter 6 is there's another storm on the horizon. This one, however, at least from the outside looking in, is a small storm by comparison. And at this point where we're going to pick things up this morning, it's just begun to brew. However, here's the interesting thing. That unlike direct physical persecution, which some believers certainly even today deal with, sometimes very severe, and and unlike a couple of Sunday morning worshipers being struck dead in the pews, which as far as I know hasn't occurred lately, I suppose it could, thank God it has not, The interesting thing about the storm we're looking at this morning is this is a storm every church faces, sometimes one that every church faces often, especially a church that is on the grow. Look at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. I'll show you what it says, and then we'll talk about what it means. This is what the Word of God says. Excuse me. It says, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, there it is, the apostles have just been beaten within an inch of their life. The church just keeps going. A complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples, and they said, It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among yourselves seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word." Now, this statement found approval with the whole congregation. So they chose Stephen, man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now, Reading that through just once at face value, it wouldn't be unexpected, I wouldn't be surprised, if in your heart of hearts you're asking the question, what exactly is the big deal here? What's the nature of, of the storm that's brewing compared again to what we've seen over the past couple of chapters? It just doesn't seem like there's a whole lot happening here that, that should, we should be worried or, or frightened or the church should have been concerned about. And I would say that in one sense, on the whole, you might be right. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal. And in fact, the storm, however big or small it may have been, came and went in the span of seven verses. By the time we got done with the reading here this morning, the storm that was brewing has been wiped out. And I'd suggest that it did. And here's where we're going with the message in God's word this morning. The reason I would suggest that it did That it started small, began brewing, but then within the span of seven verses it was over is because the apostles who were at the head of the church were learning how to share. The disciples, the apostles at the head of the church were learning how to share. Now to to show you what I mean by that and exactly how it happened, there are four things I want you to see in this passage this morning. Four things that I want to be reminded of as well. Specifically, I call them four lessons a growing church has to learn. And, and, And I think we are in some respects, we certainly desire to be a growing church, so if we want to be, and if we think maybe in some respect we are a growing church, these are things we need to know, and the sooner we learn them, and learn from them, the better. The first lesson is this. Lesson number one that every growing church has to learn is that trouble lurks in funny places. Trouble lurks in funny places. Look again at verse one, at the specific problem, quote unquote, they are dealing with here. Did you catch what it was? To put it in sort of the the most real life earthly earthly terms as I possibly can, the nature of the problem is this. One group of old women in the church was getting more bread than another group of old women. That was their problem. Look again at what it says. It says at this time the disciples were increasing in number. A complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now, as you might expect, there's more to the story here than simply meets the eye. And what we're able to piece together gives us the sense that in this rapidly growing early Jerusalem church, one significant demographic, remember it's been growing by the hundreds and the thousands, sometimes day by day, but one significant demographic in the church were widows. And if you go all the way back to the beginning of the Old Testament law, you see God is very clear with his people. He says, my people take care of widows and others who are in acute places of need in their lives. And in that culture, certainly if you were a widow, that that was bad news. And and so God has always been telling his people, you know, if you've got a a widow in need who's not able to take care of her needs, they can't be met, whatever it is, you take care of them. And, And what this verse tells us is that within that demographic in the early church, there were at least two distinct parties. One, it says, look at the Bible, your Bible says we're the, the Hellenistic Jews. That means Greek-speaking Jews. And what that leads us to believe is these were women, daughters of Abraham, members of the, the family, the tribe of Israel, who'd grown up outside the promised land, outside the Holy Land. Maybe they had married men from foreign countries. They were Jewish in heritage. They were Jewish in lineage, but they were Greek-speaking, more cosmopolitan in in the way they lived their life, and perhaps at the time they lost their husbands, came back to the Holy Land to be close to the heartbeat and, and, and the family of their faith. That's the Hellenistic. Those are sort of the outsiders who had emigrated back in. On the other hand, it says you have the native Hebrew widows. Those would be women who simply, daughters of Abraham as well, who'd grown up in the Holy Land, been there their whole lives. And so here they are in the Jerusalem church, those who had come back after living elsewhere, those who were native to it. And in all likelihood, they didn't dislike each other. We are told that there was some sort of budding or brewing rivalry between these two groups. It's just that for whatever reason, it sure looked like the natives were getting special treatment. That those who'd grown up there were being better taken care of than those who had not. And so as verse 1 says, people started complaining in a way that got other people's attention. Now I want you to think about that. Think about the nature of this problem. It is not a theological crisis the church is having. There's no doctrinal issue at stake here. No one has, has sort of messed with or, or manipulated uh, sort of their, their, their primary core key beliefs. No one has been playing games with the scripture and interpreting it wrongly in order to manipulate others. It's not that kind of a problem whatsoever. Uh, no one's being persecuted at this moment. There's just a dispute about bread and who gets more and am I getting enough? And yet, Luke the author of this book, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, thinks we need to know this story. Why? Because that's where church trouble always starts. In exactly this kind of situation. This is the kind of place where church trouble always starts. Why? Because stuff happens. Because people make mistakes. Because there are oversights, as there were here, as there are in any relationship or realm of life. Because offenses, most of them never intended to be offensive, are committed or received in that way. Somebody moved the piano. Somebody changed the communion bread, and they didn't consult me. And rather than going to the people who might be responsible for it, I'm going to go talk to my small group about it. And then I'm going to go talk to some other people about it, and we're going to get really, really angry because they moved the piano or changed the bread, or adjusted this or that or the other thing. Am I telling the truth? This is where church trouble starts. Kent Hughes, pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, records a story. He documented a story of a church split that took place, I, I believe it was in the late 1970s. It was in Dallas. True story. And this church split was so severe Such a crisis that it landed not only in denominational court, the denomination that this church was part of, it also landed in civil court, in the government court, in order to decide who was going to get the land, who was going to get the building, and who was going to get the money. Big, bad deal. And do you know how it started? I don't use the word unbelievable very often because I think it's overused. This is a truly unbelievable story. This crisis that led to these churches, and and the whole city could see this happening, began at a church potluck where an elder in the church who was eating his meal looked and saw that the child sitting next to him had a bigger piece of ham than he did. I was silent when I read that story, too. That's unbelievable. And yet one thing led to another, and he took offense at something about it, and there was a backstory that didn't get dealt with, and they talked to some people, and pretty soon the whole world is literally laughing at this church and those crazy Christians and their weird problems. This is where church trouble lurks in funny places, and we laugh at it till it happens to us. And then you know what we realize? Stuff like this is deadly, serious spiritual business. It's satanic attack. See, when Satan can't crush a church head-on through persecution, and he can't distort it internally through deception, he comes in through the side door and starts messing with people's attitudes their perspectives and their ability to and their willingness to work things out. But we're not here this morning to lament church splits and all their ridiculous causes. My point, as I see it here in the text, is that since the church was growing so quickly, th- the bottom line, it was growing so quickly and so much was happening that the apostles alone couldn't monitor everything that was happening. And they couldn't referee and officiate every little dispute and question and concern that came up. And so because that was the case, something that was relatively small, whose kid is everybody getting enough bread to eat for dinner? had the sinister potential to explode into something very, very bad. Because the apostles just couldn't keep track of it all. So in order to stop the trouble in its tracks, a second lesson emerges. This is really the big one of the four that we're going to look at this morning. They made a discovery, or they drew a conclusion, and it was this, number two, that dividing the task will multiply the ministry. The disciples, the apostles' conclusion was that dividing the task will multiply the ministry. You don't have to raise your hand in answer to this question, but in your heart, you can raise the invisible one if it applies. Have any of the following words ever come out of your mouth? If you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. If I don't take care of it, nobody's going to do it. You know, I'm not a control freak. I just like being in charge, I mean involved (laughs) in things. You know you've said that. It's in my DNA. And I know sometimes it shows up in weird, funny little ways, and sometimes it's deadly serious and threatens to destroy my life. The desire to control. But I don't think that makes me unique. I think we're all more or less wired that way. It's just what we're wired to care about and control differs from person to person. There are all things in our lives we want control over. And that we want to be able to dictate certain outcomes. We're all hardwired to control what we care about. And that was true of the apostles at the head of the early church. They cared about this church. It was their life. Christ had entrusted it to them and they too leading it. But somehow what this relatively minor incident about widows getting enough to eat showed them is that they couldn't and that they shouldn't be doing it all. That's not what Jesus asked them to do. And it's not what he instructed them to do. And while we aren't told how they got there, verse two, two, look at it in your Bible, does give us their conclusion. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples, and they said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. So what are you saying, guys? Saying you're too high and holy to take out the trash? Because you get to preach and teach the word of God. You don't have to serve people food. You don't have to sweep up the, the fellowship hall after things get done. It's kind of what it looks like, doesn't it? I said, we're too busy with the word of God and prayer being spiritual men that we can't, it looks like that. And I bet there were people in the crowd who were thinking, is that what they're saying? They're too good and too holy to dirty their hands with stuff and so they want other people to do that so they can go hide in a room somewhere and pray and preach and have a good, it kind of looks that way. Well, that isn't what they were saying, not in the least, and here's why. First of all, that term, serving tables. Look at it again in your Bible. They said, it's not desirable for us. Let's look at their statement and just sort of pick it apart for a minute. It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Now, serving tables is more than it seems. Yes, there's a part of it that would uh, include or, or might involve the actual physical act of putting food on a plate and setting it in front of someone else, but that's not really what the term here means. It's bigger than that. It encompasses all that goes into collecting and allocating and distributing and deciding and and making sure that the whole ministry, in this case, to the widows who were in need, actually gets done. It's talking about an entire ministry operation. That's why if you read the New Living Translation, I think it puts it best. The New Living Translation of the Apostles' conclusion is this. We apostles should be teaching the Word of God, not running a food program. And that's helpful. It's helpful because because what what they wanted the church to understand is is not that serving tables and all it represents is unimportant or or not real ministry. If you look at that statement again, the implication is that, gang, both of these things need to be done. Ministry of the word and ministry to specific practical needs. All the apostles are saying is we can't do it all. And we aren't gifted and equipped and wired to do it all. No, they understood if the church is going to flourish, if the gospel is going to spread, if the wildfire is going to burn, then a whole bunch of other different believers, uniquely gifted by God, need to be put in the special place that God wants them to be, doing the things he's wired them to do, because dividing the task will multiply the ministry. It'll just get done, but it'll get done better. So what I would suggest... Is it really what the apostles say here doesn't, as so often happens, create a a gap between, you know, real ministry and all that other stuff, sort of that clergy laity, if you want to use the old terminology, distinction. I don't think that's what the apostles say here at all. No, I think what the apostles say actually takes all the stuff that we would consider is sort of represented by serving tables, we might call it practical ministry, and elevates it, puts it on the exact same level. They said it's not desirable for us. Why? Because God's wired us differently. And he's asked us to do something different. Both things need to be done, gang. It's just that he has created and gifted other people to do them. And I know that because a few years later, Peter wrote a letter. It's called 1 Peter. I want you to turn there in your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 4. And I don't know for sure, but I have to think that when Peter wrote these words in 1 Peter chapter 4, he was writing to a whole different group of churches. Basically, gang, here's what I've learned along the way. Be ready for it. I happen to think that perhaps when Peter wrote the, the two verses I'm about to read to you, he was thinking about Acts chapter 6 and what he had learned there. Because this is what he said to a whole group of other churches in a different place who were probably dealing with the same kind of thing. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, as each one has received each person a special gift, use it. In serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. He's saying God's grace is is, is shared, it is expressed, it is poured out in all sorts of different ways. It's not just the guy who stands up in front and talks for 40 minutes on Sunday. There's all sorts of things that that deliver the grace of God and reveal it to the world. And then he goes on to say this. And here's where I think Peter is not creating a, a difference. He is actually putting believers on level playing field. He says, whoever speaks should do so as he's speaking the utterances of God. Take it seriously. And whoever serves right next to it is to do so as one who is serving by the strength God supplies. So then everybody say all things. things. Try saying it like you mean it. All All things. God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know what that means? Means the person who bakes the communion bread is just as important as the person who stands up here and leads it on Sunday morning. Means the guy who hangs the whiteboard in the little kids' Sunday school classroom is every bit a servant of Jesus Christ as the woman who comes in on Sunday morning and uses it to teach a lesson to some children. It means that those who greet visitors at the door on Sunday morning are every bit a servant and a minister of the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ as those who go to the hospital and the sick and those who are shut in their homes. Same thing. It's all ministry. It's all ministry in the name and by the grace and for the glory of Jesus Christ. It means whoever vacuums the sanctuary stage is every bit as much a servant as the people who stand up here with guitars and instruments and voices to lead us in worship. It's all ministry. It's all ministry. You know how I know that? Because of the third lesson this passage teaches. Because of the kind of men the apostles were looking for to carry out the job in Acts chapter 6 leads us to the third lesson, which is this, the understanding, the reality that Christ-like character matters most. That when it comes to being a servant of God, when it comes to serving within the body of Christ, it is Christ-like character that matters the most. You know, a lot of people, and I would put myself in this camp, have viewed what happens next here in verses 3 and 4 as as perhaps the the institution of, of the church's first deacons. And I've just always kind of thought of that this way, and, and, and there may be some truth to that. We're not sure. The fact of the matter is that the men who are about to be chosen were never called, at least in this passage, deacons, although the language of being a deacon, a servant, the, 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 the Greek term, there's several variations of it here. But whatever the case, the important thing here is not the office that anyone aspired to or was granted. The important thing in verses 3 and 4 is, again, the kind of guy or kind of person the apostles were looking for to handle this job of making sure everybody got their needs met. And this is, again, what they were looking for in verse 3. Therefore, brethren, select from among yourselves. In fact, he said, he said, look, just, just look around the room, guys. Look around the sanctuary on Sunday morning, and here's what we're looking for. You tell us. Not a bad approach. Select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit, And of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Not, choose from among yourselves seven warm bodies. (laughs) Seven people with the weakest excuses for opting out that we can coerce into doing this task because if they don't do it, it ain't going to get done. It's not what they were looking for. Now, what do they want? Well, by what it says in verse 3, here's what they were looking for. They were looking for individuals whose outward conduct and inward character no difference. No difference. They were looking for men who radiated the character of Jesus Christ because they day by day walked by the Holy Spirit. Men who were moving toward maturity in their faith. See, the task was so important because it was ministry. The task was so important that the disciples, they didn't want guys they were going to have to babysit. They didn't want guys they were going to have to micromanage. They wanted men they could trust. Men who were full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, who were serious about the task, whose, whose, whose record in public was clean and unassailable. And you know what the interesting thing about that is? is about that is, is As G. Campbell Morgan puts it in his commentary on, his, on, on these verses, this is a deeply convicting statement. He says, that means they were looking for men who, quote, were living the normal Christian life. Not superstars, not A-students, This is how Christians are supposed to live, that we should have a clean reputation in the world as followers of Christ, not legalistic, clean, walking in purity, not perfect, but holiness, walking in obedience, people who, because they know the Lord and love the Lord, spend time with the Lord, and therefore are just sort of radiating his grace and his goodness and his spirit. What that means is as they looked around to select from among themselves seven men to handle this job, that should not have been a difficult assignment. I find that deeply convicting, but <laughs> that that's what they were looking for. To which maybe in our hearts we say, well, if that's the standard, if that's what they're looking for, I might as well quit now or not even bother trying, because that sure doesn't sound like me. No, that's not what we should say. What we should say instead is, since that's the assignment, since that's what God's looking for, since that's the example that's set down for us here in the scriptures, whether someone gets the title deacon in front of their name or not, means I better get in the word. I better spend some time with Jesus. I should make prayer a priority. I should treat worship not as an add-on, but the beginning of my week, and it filters through everything else that, that happens. It's not calling us to perfection. It's not calling us to legalism. It's simply calling us to walk with Jesus day by day, so when the assignment comes, we're ready. It's a high calling, but it's an important one. It's a critical one. It means that I, that you, that all of us need to be moving toward maturity in Christ. Because, fourth and finally, here's what this story shows us. Because when it's all said and done, or as it begins to unfold, fourth and finally, obedience will bring surprising blessings. The blessings of obedience will take us by surprise. Let me see if real quickly I can explain what that means because there's several things happening in these last three verses. First of all, we see that because the disciples recognized the storm for what it was and dealt with it in a Christ like way, first of all, we see that in fact in verse five, the immediate need was met. It says, the statement found approval with the whole congregation. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenus, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, which in turn means all the widows got their bread. Problem was solved. And we assume the ministry then was able to faithfully and consistently continue. Now, that's a blessing, but that's really not a surprise. We would assume that if they followed God's word, that's what was going to happen. Here's the surprise. That of the seven men listed there, two of those names, if you've read your Bible much, and if not, but, but they ought to jump out to us. See, the last five guys mentioned in that list, that's the only time they're ever mentioned in the scriptures. We don't know another single thing about them. But the first two guys, Stephen and Philip, we're going to find this over the next few weeks, become the central figures in the next three chapters of the book of Acts. It's their story. It's God's story. It's the church's story, but through them. It's almost as if the apostles kind of shift to the side and these guys become major players. In fact, if I understand what's written here correctly or what's coming next, these are the two guys, one through his life and the other through his death, who take the great commission, take the gospel into all the world, out of Jerusalem and into Judea. They're the ones who get it up and out of the city. They're the prime movers in getting the gospel going forward. Their stories are amazing and they are going to be exciting to see. The surprise here is these guys stepped up to help run a food program. They become evangelists who take the gospel out and begin transforming. I just signed up to make sure people got fed. Guess what? You're going to take the gospel to the world because you were ready. Remember, faithful in small things? Faithful in much. That's one blessing. There's another blessing, verse 6. And the blessing is this, and again, this may not be a surprise, but it's so worth noting that because these men were willing to step up and do the job and do it the way God desired, the apostles could keep the main thing the main thing. They could stay focused on their primary task because what does it say? Well, they brought these guys, these seven, before the apostles, and the apostles did what they were commissioned to do, prayed. And after praying, they laid their hands on them. That's a sign of bestowing authority. They probably did it with scriptures. I don't think that's reading too much in to say that. They were able to focus on prayer and the word of God. They could stay focused on their assignment. They weren't overwhelmed. They weren't crushed by the burden. May not have been a blessing to anybody else. I bet it was a blessing to them. And then verse 7, because those things were true, because in verse 5, these seven guys stepped up to the task and were ready for it. And in verse 6, the apostles could keep their assignment in focus and in view, we see once again, and we should be getting so familiar with it by now that we could say it with Luke, the wildfire continued to grow. Verse 7, it's, it's almost a carbon copy of verse 1. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And, here's the surprise, a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now that's interesting. Guys who are part of the religious, it seems, establishment, priests, haven't they been the troublemakers so far? We've seen that the religious establishment, the priests are the ones who took the 12 apostles out and beat them within an inch of their life and threw them in jail and drug them into court. It was the religious establishment. Guess what? That's not these guys. See, historians tell us that at at this point in time, in church history and the history of Israel, there are as many, perhaps, as 8,000 men who served as, we might call them, lay priests, laymen, Volunteers. Uh, an example would be Zacharias, father of John the Baptist. If you remember the birth story of Jesus, Zacharias went up for a couple of weeks to serve in the temple. They went back home and did his farming thing or whatever it was he was doing. And there are about eight thousand guys they think like this who just go up and do their little part, and then they go back. But they, uh, and, and again, this is my understanding because this is an interesting statement that many of them were coming to the faith. And I asked myself why. Well, my hunch is that when they went up to do their little thing a couple of times a year, they were treated like they're doing their little thing by the establishment. And they would look and see, hey, there's a difference between the way they live and the way we live. These high priests and Sadducees and Pharisees, man, they have power, they have prestige, they own it, they they have all sorts of extra blessings, they control the show here, and they perhaps treat us like we're here to clean up the messes. We're here to do our little thing and then go back to the sticks and just leave us alone. I may be wrong. That's my hunch based on what we've seen in the characters of the religious establishment to this point. So don't you think it's possible that when these guys came up a couple of weeks here to do their little thing and realized that, hey, it's not quite as wonderful and sweet here as we're led to believe that the church of Jesus Christ and what we just saw here in Acts chapter 6 would have incredible appeal. They talk about brothers and sisters in the Lord and they mean it. They treat all ministry like it matters. That's just my two cents. That's my hunch. But whatever it was, there was something about the church that had a magnetic pull on these guys who were already religious. And I think what they realize is this, that while personal assignments from Christ may vary, personal value does not. It doesn't. Every member is a minister for Jesus Christ. And that brings me around real quick before we close to one more note in this section it's too important to pass over and it's the beginning of verse 5 where it says that this statement, the disciples, the apostles' approach to handling this brewing storm found approval with the whole congregation. I could give you, I could introduce you to a long, long list of colleagues in ministry who wish that could be said about their churches. I don't worry about that here. We have a very humble united body. So many times the elders and I have been humbled by the fact that when it comes time to make a big decision we pull together as a body. I want you to know that's not the way it normally works. But in this case the body was united. In this case the body was committed and in my view that's why this potential storm in verse one became a huge success by verse seven because there was a church body who trusted their leaders because the church leaders had empowered the body to serve Jesus Christ and didn't treat them like lesser people. Didn't treat them like what they were doing wasn't as important as praying and teaching the Word of God. They showed them dignity and they showed them love. They were not perfect, but they had a plan. God's plan. And they all approved the decision and it allowed them all to move forward in unity and not get sidetracked from the main thing. What am I saying? I'm saying obedience brought surprising blessings. And not small ones either. You know, before I... um, before I came here to serve at Maranatha, uh, spent some time exploring several opportunities in ministry. And at one point, I was visiting with another church in a different town, not anywhere around here. Nobody here knows, so I can tell this story. Um, But it got to the point where I sent them my resume, and they sent me a job description. And when I opened that job description up, it was very interesting. As I went through it, this is their list of what this church wanted in a pastor. And by my recollection, memory's a bit fuzzy, this was a few years ago, but it was a single-spaced, bullet-pointed list of, of nearly, if I remember correctly, 70 things they wanted their pastor to do. Seven-zero. Page and a half. One thing after another, after another. And I don't know if that was the mentality of the church, was the pastor just supposed to do everything, or if the reality was they just had a congregation that didn't want to do anything. But, but as I read through it, I turned to my wife as we looked at this list, I said, this church would not hire Jesus. <laughs> And then I thought to myself, and if they offered him the job, he'd turn them down. Nobody wants that much responsibility, and nobody can do that kind of job. Why? Because ministry is meant to be shared. Ministry is meant to be shared. And while we may have a long way to go in that here in our church, that's our heart. That's our desire. That's what moving toward maturity is all about. We all have a stake in spreading the gospel. Every Christian has an assignment and every assignment is essential. So real quick, I know we're running out of time. Before I give you the big idea, let me give you a big exhortation. Never. Everybody say never. Never Never let the words come out of your mouth or let anyone else's words be said to you, I'm just a greeter. I'm just a nursery worker. I'm just the guy who cleans up after the youth group on Wednesday night. I'm just the guy who passes out bulletins at the door. Never. Why? Because the big idea of the message is this, that Jesus doesn't have second-class servants. Jesus does not have second-class servants. Every member is a minister. Now, he may have some misassigned servants. He may have some uninformed servants. He may have some people who have not yet discovered their assignment. That's a different challenge. But you have a gift if you're a believer. You have an assignment And it's just as important as everybody else's. And Father, if we leave here as believers today remembering nothing else, let us understand, not because I said so, but because your word says so, that there are no second-class servants. That every contribution makes a difference and we never know what you're going to do with it. Father, we desire to be a church And I'm sure millions of other churches desire the same thing, where Christ is glorified as the whole body works together. And you've given us a great foundation, Father. We take no credit for it. You have done it. But we want to build on it. Where we're weak, we want to be strong. Where we're strong, we want to be humble. Father, help each one of us to find our gift, to discover our assignment, and to step in knowing that it is valued and it is necessary and it can help the wildfire keep burning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.